0: everyone. And welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zouk. And today I'm joined by Lex Sokolin, CMO, Chief Economist, and Global Fintech Co-Head at Consensus, the world's leading Ethereum software company. Lex also runs the Fintech Blueprint, perhaps my favorite Fintech subscription newsletter that also comes with the occasional podcast. Before Consensus. Lex worked in strategy at Lehman Brothers before getting a JD MBA from Columbia. He then founded Nest Egg, a private label robo, and sold it to Advisor Engine. Then he worked in research at Autonomous Research. Lex is a FinTech and technology futurist in every sense of the word, always writing at the intersection of finance, tech, law, philosophy, economics, and sociology. He's one of my favorite thinkers in the space. In today's episode, Lex and I discuss his background and the deep meaning behind his decision-making, breaking from gold star chasing to startups and frontier technology, how a conversation with a Deloitte exec turned him into a budding futurist, what consensus is and how it works within the crypto ecosystem, his predictions for DeFi and the road to mass adoption, his boredom with FinTech super apps, robo-advisors and neobanks, Why Google Pay is going to kill many fintechs, and of course, crypto art and NFTs, where he has been very early in the space. Lex is thorough and fascinating in today's episode. I highly suggest subscribing to his newsletter, linked in the description. Let's get started. Hi, Lex, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. It's great to have you on the show today. One of my favorite thinkers in fintech, a great Twitter follow. And of course, I love your newsletter, The Fintech Blueprint. So where are you at the moment and where have you been quarantining since you know, last March?
1: Uh, that's so kind of you to say thank you. I'm really excited to speak to you and, and to the audience. I am a New York transplant into London. Uh, I've been here now almost five years. And it's been great to share joint leadership of COVID disaster between the U.S. and the U.K. It's, it's, like, a,
0: it's like a dystopian horse race. Right. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. The two English-speaking countries wearing it proudly right now, leaving everyone else in the dust. Hashtag freedom. <laughs> so many in the space you know, know who you are right now, a CMO and head of FinTech and, uh, at Consensus, and of course, writer of the FinTech Blueprint. But maybe they don't know as much about your background and your pretty wild ride, in my opinion, to get to where you are now. So let's take the listeners back. A young, wide-eyed Lex is graduating to little Harvard known as Amherst and is heading to, at the time, a promising company called Lehman Brothers. So what first brought you into finance and this role?
1: So I grew up with a two-sided brain. Uh, one focused on economics and law and social sciences and then finance. And that was fairly consistent growing up, you know. So I ended up doing a double major at Amherst in economics, and we had a major called Law, Jurisprudence, and Social Thought. So you know, the postmodernism is intoxicating in there. And then I ended up going to Columbia for a JDMBA. and in my consensus role and all of the fintech roles, I pull a little bit of philosophy and sociology, and a little bit of law and a little bit of economics to tell the stories of what's going on. Um, but at the same time, I also have this really strong visual arts background where I grew up painting and drawing and illustrating and hand coding websites and playing around with flash. You know, and it's been a difficult path to try to bring these two things together. But now that you know, it's 2021 and we've got crypto art non fungible tokens that are trading for 1.2 million on a decentralized finance network coded by uh, genius technologists and floated on global exchanges across 50 different jurisdictions, it feels like finally the background's coming together. You know, But to your actual question about Lehman, I was pulled into an investment banking sort of black hole, like a lot of people are uh, as an immigrant growing up in the States. And I was going into a strategy role at Lehman Brothers in the management business. And so there was a a chunky asset manager and wealth manager that Lehman had. And I joined to do spreadsheets for a division that made about one and a half billion in revenue. And uh, it was a really good 06 and creaky 2007 and a spectacular 2008. And I'm, you know, I'm super thankful for basically getting that education on somebody else's dime.
0: Right. So then you jumped to Barclays, of course, and then the Columbia JD MBA, quite a good parallel to your undergraduate education. And then you did a quick stint in IB as well. So what was the initial kind of reasoning to pursue the JD, MBA and leave the finance world, at least for that time?
1: Yeah, I'll try to be a little bit rhetorical here and maybe a little bit personal. So many of us, well, all people have lots of difficult and predictable impulses. One of those personality types and one of those impulses is the collection of prestige uh, and the desire to collect gold stars and good grades. I grew up in a system and with a value set that really prioritized getting good grades. And so the pursuit of badges, you know, you can kind of think of like, you know, Fidel Castro towards the end of his life with all the awards on his sleeves, you know, that it was just woven into my character. And so I've since tried to disambiguate the signal from the noise, but the signal is really important, uh, especially early on in your career, because it shortcuts how long people think about where you come from and what you can do and how you can do it and so on. So even though it's not a great game to play in the absolute, it's too costly, um, it still can yield like really fruitful outcomes. So you know, I went into investment banking because I thought it was prestigious and I didn't go into technology startups or independent hedge funds or anything like that because I didn't know what it was and it, well, there wasn't a giant black hole into it. And so, you know, Lehman pulled me in through an on-campus recruiting process at Amherst and I did my two years. And then during Lehman, I was very impressionable by a couple of individuals that I just thought were really impressive personally. Yes, they were like fantastically wealthy and that's the wrong thing to admire about them. I found them very smart, you know, and again, being sort of at that stage really oriented towards the prestige and, you know, smart person must be good, that kind of thing. There were people who had JDMBAs that I thought were just like really, really sharp. In particular, there was a gentleman by the name of John Cecil at Lehman who used to be its CFO and then went out and went in out of the firm. And he was just the sharpest thinker I've interacted with. And then, you know, there are others. If you looked around Wall Street, Lloyd at Goldman at the time had a law degree. Um, And so there were a bunch of people who were in high-powered finance positions who had a legal and business background. And I thought, well, because they have this background, therefore they are in this position. And there's a, a mistake in there. There's a correlation mistake in there, uh, which is to say, because of the type of person they were, they were in that position. And also because of the type of person they were, they got the JDMBA. Uh, it's not that the degree led to the the outcome, but it's because of you know, their capacity regardless I really looked up to these people and I thought I'm gonna brand myself I'm gonna stamp on myself the same education and so like my plan coming out of Lehman the whole time was to do that. I went through two rounds of applications through two years. Um, I got the law acceptance first and then I got the business school acceptance after and kind of stitched together and went to Columbia to to pursue what at the time I thought was important and of course everything changed when I tried my hands at startups which completely sort of threw the, the value system, the sort of old star chasing system that I had embedded in me, it really changed how I started to think about the world. And, um, you know, that's why I'm at a crypto company now.
0: Yeah, I have to say, Lex, I think a lot of what you just said resonates a lot with me um, and probably a lot of listeners on the show. I think in my life, I think just an easy framework to fall back on sometimes is just kind of the gold star chasing mentality while you're still trying to figure out where and what you're good at and what you should pursue. And so it's just kind of this high floor, you know, medium ceiling option that just kind of makes a lot of sense, but that's probably another conversation. So you were able to, you know, break the wheel, so to say, and swing the pendulum in the other direction. So while at Columbia, you, you started this startup, um, a private label robo called Nest Egg that was later acquired by Advisor Engine. You were doing this while chasing two d- really difficult degrees and coming from a traditional background. How did this come about? So it was first year
1: at Columbia, and this is, what was it, 2009? And it was somewhere around 2014 that I started saying I'm a futurist and feeling okay with that, uh, you know, and now everybody's a futurist. And, but in 2009, I didn't really have an identity that was strongly articulated. I thought of myself as sort of like an introverted analyst type. And I went to a lecture by somebody from Deloitte, of all places, who was like a professional futurist at Deloitte, who ran the long-dated future view sort of group that would create all sorts of, you know, absurd Elon Muskian type predictions. And his prediction was, you are going to get really expensive things for free, but it will forever lock you into brands. So his example was you'll get a really expensive car, $25,000, $50,000 car for free, but it will be from Walmart and then you can only shop at Walmart. And it was kind of around the time where people were really thinking about the freemium model deeply and as the the photo sharing sites, you know, sort of like box, Dropbox came out around then. And his point was the freemium model taken to an extreme is kind of this, it's like, You get a huge thing for free and then you give away, you trade away some of your freedom. And I think in many ways, it's totally right. You know, like this is what Facebook does to us. We, we receive this giant free gift and then we get nickel and dimed for the rest of our lives. And so I found that idea really compelling because coming out of a strategy role in wealth management, in investment management, wealth management, I had thought a lot about just how unbelievably human and arcane that whole industry was. You know, Just as an example, because I had grown up making websites, I at one point went to head of strategy that i worked for and i was like hey why don't we take all our financial advisors and put their profile on the internet so people can come to the lehman site and click on their profile and there it's lead generation to the fa and he was like no no then goldman sachs will be able to recruit our advisors because they'll know their email i was like okay great oh god i ended up forming very quickly with a couple of classmates cluster mates a, you know, an MVP and an idea. And through the university, we got a little bit of seed funding and it was because I could design, I just designed it. Uh, And we were off to the races like in three to six months, despite really doing everything I could to get back on sort of a professional track, the startup, no matter how pointless and disappointing it was most of the time, really just kept pulling me back um, with New opportunities, new ideas, new people that I would meet. Like I learned to sell for the first time in my life at the age of whatever it was, twenty-five, right? Like I had never sold anything before, um, and so it was just it was just a blast. Um, and it it does kind of reformat your mind. So the, you know, the TLDR is Nest Egg was a B two C robo advisor. We started a little bit after Betterment. Um, I didn't want to leave my program because it was hard to get into. Uh, so financially, it's very costly to do uh, to do it. Costs. But, you know, I wanted to check it off. And then the B2C opportunity really needs funding to acquire customers. And I ended up de-risking and going B2B, private label, digital wealth uh, around 2013, 2014. And the demand that we saw from registered investment advisors for private label robo-advice you know, just felt overwhelming, like 30 institutions writing every month being like, hey, I want a robo-advisor, maybe two or three competitors in the space, just felt very different from slogging it out to try to raise funding or whatever. And so we pivoted to B2B. And then I had met uh, Rich Cancro, just through the network, who ran the wealth tech group at Bear Stearns, JP Morgan, and then at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, you know, so for a very large advisor workforce and we said we can do b2c robo plus digital wealth together and do it on sort of modern dna and that's how the combination with advisor engine happened in 2014 and a couple of years of that we had really set up a platform that was institutionally relevant so we raised 50 million from wisdom tree sold the business to franklin templeton about a year ago you know i had exited um, by 2016 but Regardless, the company kind of had a path forward and you know, it was a super educational experience about the B2C journey, the B2B journey. For me, selling software to financial advisors was never the goal, uh, which got me to start thinking a little bit more broadly about what am I really trying to do and why and so on. And so I joined an equity research shop called Autonomous Research in 2016. And it's like a weird move for somebody who's just articulated the importance of startups and scar tissue and doing things yourself. And you know, here's this equity research firm, but there was a couple of things I wanted to get done. The first is I had gotten really stuck in wealth and I needed to go cross industry, payments, banking, lending, you know, asset management, capital, institutional capital markets, insurance. So the other asset classes. Because I had this idea that what was happening in wealth is actually exactly the same as what's happening with digital lending and neobanks. And that turns out to be correct. And then the second point is putting advisors or putting wealth management into a phone today. I mean, it just sounds so pedestrian and uninteresting. And it was starting to become that. Like, of course, yes, all of it is in the phone. And yes, the rest of the things are dead. Like there's nothing else to say or do or discover. That is the outcome. Yes, Google Pay is going to kill all of you at the end. Um, and so the question is, what else? Uh, what are the platform shifts that are available, that matter, that are different? And so I wanted to spend time on artificial intelligence and blockchain and you know the other parts of the value chain. And also to do that with full visibility into the leadership teams of large public financial companies and have an investor network. And so Autonomous ended up being super fruitful in finding an answer for myself as to what is happening
0: got it so that of course brings us to consensus where you're now chief marketing officer as well as head of fintech so for our listeners who are not familiar what is consensus and what problem is it trying to solve
1: consensus is the leading ethereum software company and it focuses on three pillars the first is user enablement, so your ability to hold crypto directly on the chain rather than through a third party. So if you've ever used MetaMask as your crypto wallet, uh, which has about one and a half million MAUs, you've used a consensus product. Uh, second is developer enablement. So for blockchains to have software on them for decentralized finance to exist, somebody's got to write that software. And so developers are the mana of innovation these days. And you, know, you can think about that deeply embarrassing video from Microsoft uh, yelling developers, 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 and that's exactly it. So Infura, which provides APIs to an Ethereum node, or Truffle, which gives people libraries to code stuff, or Quorum, which helps you set up a private permission to Ethereum. Like, these are things to help people build. And then the third is financial enablement. So my thesis is that crypto networks are uniquely financial that their ability to enforce digital property rights is an economic system. Like you need a property rights system to have economies and markets and venues and so on. And so getting assets into these systems and getting flows and trading and plugging in large financial institutions and plugging in crypto funds and making it all work is uh, a key pillar. And so user enablement, developer enablement, financial enablement, and we provide software to do that. Consensus was founded by Joe Lubin, who's also the founder of Ethereum. And so it's an Ethereum protocol company at heart, although increasingly we're coming into a multi-protocol world and working with other chains and integrating them into our stack. And so for me, the really interesting thing is not necessarily the asset class, but the software. And in particular, as that software creates a financial middleware or financial infrastructure to manufacture financial products. You know, and that's where the innovation ends. Like we have new machines, but we're making the same stuff that people used 2000 years ago. Like money, like IOUs, you know, come back tomorrow and pay me for it, like I own this house, or let's trade. I give you this piece of gold and you give me this this cow. Those financial primitives are timeless. They're just social constructs for people to behave And now we have just a next generation software to do it much better than uh, our current financial system can do.
0: And I mean, DeFi and blockchain and distributed ledger technology, no matter what people say and how much inertia still exists in the big machine, is objectively a better way to do things. Of course, you know, save for some of the potential environmental implications of blockchain and distributed ledger technology that we've seen in Bitcoin mining. But... That will save for another episode. So adoption, you know, just seems to be the big barrier. So pushing the clock ahead, let's say six or seven years, where do you see the mainstream adoption of DeFi and adjacent technologies?
1: What are the decentralized finance protocols? Uh, The answer is they're not Robinhood. They're not Revolut. They're, They're not SoFi. Uh, They're not distribution arms. That's not their purpose. There's plenty of distribution out there. Rather, what they are is factories. They're the machines that make the product. In the traditional world, if you want to make something that looks like an equity trade, what you would do is have a specific value chain for stocks, for stock trading. right? So you might have clearing and then settlement and then exchange and then a broker dealer and then a financial advisor and then a person. And then for venture capital you might have a lawyer and then another lawyer and then, you know, a fund and a GP and an LP and a company and now you have Carta. And for fixed income you'll have a third infrastructure and for real estate a fourth one and so on and so forth for the long tail. In crypto, you write in the exact same standard for all asset classes because the asset class actually is very fungible. Like it's The main difference is regulation. There's nothing the software really cares about natively about the asset class. It only really cares about instructions that come from a regulatory body. And as you know, most people are sort of ignoring that in the crypto space and building anyway. So again, going back to what is DeFi? DeFi is kind of like the institutional capital markets desk at Morgan Stanley. And so we're saying, oh boy, it's hard to understand what Ave does or what Yearn does. And actually, it's, it's not that hard. A person can stare at it for a week and understand it and everything's open and available and it's not gated and everyone will help you. And so it is actually understandable. But even when you do understand it, what you realize is, you know, should an individual be so focused on the process of running an institutional capital markets desk? And, you know, my answer is kind of, no, you you don't. Not everybody has to be a car mechanic. Right. Everybody just needs to drive. So five to seven years from now, the answer is as boring as it can be. And that's what's happened with robo-advice. And it's what's happened with digital lending and with neobanking and with anything you can think about, which is, it's just going to show up in your phone or whatever version of your phone you're going to have. And it'll just be another button. That's it. Start to finish. So the interesting part of being in the industry is that actually getting there is hard because you are solving a very multidimensional puzzle. You're solving a legal regulatory puzzle. You are solving a sort of revenue business puzzle. Um, you're also multi-jurisdictional. Your infrastructure with Ethereum itself is kind of clunky at times. You know, So this computer computes slowly and expensively, which is not surprising because it's version one. So there's certainly a lot of challenges, but I,
0: I think you can look at the core insight and just project it out. That's really interesting, Lex. I like that a lot. And what a world it will be in 2028 if DeFi is so sleek that it's just another button we can press on our phone, which I suppose is as foreign of a concept as buying crypto probably was with the press of a button in 2010 or 2011. But of course, here we are with Coinbase set to go public. So this will definitely have major implications for banks. And speaking of bank disruption, I want to return to something you said earlier, saying that Google Pay is going to eat all of you anyway. So why bother? And although Nick Milanovic might be excited to hear this, can you extrapolate on that a little bit? So what is it that Google Pay can do that you look at
1: SoFi and you look at Robinhood and you look at Chime and you look at Aspiration and M1, yeah, a fantastic conversation with M One. Actually, a big believer in them over a lot of the other plays, you know. And I think Chime is is killing it, doing a really mm-hmm. great job. And and in particular, there are some really good behavioral hacks about what is it that people really need. You know, some people really need uh, consumption smoothing. Other people mm-hmm. really need to be protected from overdrafts. Right. Um, other people really need automated savings. And like these are all little individual robots that are built around. A particular part of a consumer's brain. It's like, you know, you keep making this mistake. And so we'll make this app for you. We'll make an app that cancels your subscription and then takes that and puts it into a passive uh, asset allocation. And then we'll make an app about giving you an advance every Friday because that's, we can scan big data and see that's going to be your problem. And you can make 20 of these apps. And nobody will ever persuade me that each of these needs to be its own company. I mean, it's deeply uninteresting that some feature hack is touted as the future of finance. And then when that feature hack ends up generating one to five million users, the playbook is we're going to make Citigroup from the 80s, but 40 years later. Like that can't be it. You know, and I write about this fintech bundle all the time. And, yeah. You know, it's descriptive and it's kind of cool to show the screen, but at the same time, it's it's just the moment you you invoke the fintech bundle, it just immediately deeply boring. You know, it's like yeah, you got the answer there. It's done. SoFi going to do? It's going to do a fintech bundle. That's how it's going to diversify. of It's student lending. You know, what is um, what is Bank going to do? You know, it's got some crypto trading, but then it's going to do the fintech bundle because so there's so many assets like real estate. And it's just. I find it kind of unimaginative and so when i'm using google pay as an example i'm just saying like what's the point of competing against google pay google pays already come out and said we're going to do payments and banking and investments and rewards and it's all going to flow in here and i kind of believe them and so i wish people would take riskier weirder bets you know that's what i want i'll beat the dead horse one last time which is Goldman Sachs, which is a fantastic company in terms of its execution, launched a robo-advisor as part of its Marcus offering in the year 2021. It is, for all intents and purposes, identical to Betterment, as Betterment was in the year 2009. And if we want to be nice, we can say, or identical to Schwab when it launched in the year 2013. Don't start a robo-advisor anymore, you know? Like, there's no point. Go into digital collectibles. Uh, It's just the new frontier.
0: Well, Lex, I, I agree at the core. I get the point you're making. A few rebuttals, though, I think to your statement of, you know, is there a point to starting these banks? You know, the Currents, the SoFi's, Chimes, Fronts of the World, who have all been on the podcast, would say, hey, we've built amazingly valuable businesses that help consumers a lot, employ tons of people, and some of, the, of us actually have great unit economics, you know, and companies like Current especially, I think, have built such great brands and loyalty, which can't be understated. And as you said, you know, fintechs are building robots for our behaviors, but I think most fintechs right now are just building a few really good robots, and none have built this great self-driving, you know, money utopia. I think, you know, Google, if they do, maybe it'll be a lot of, you know, b to b plus robots, but maybe some people just want that one or two A plus bot for a few needs. And, you know, they still have a ton of execution risk. But I think what you're trying to say, yes, I I get it. The world definitely has enough robo-advisors. The Marcus example is great. And we're getting very close to enough challenger banks, although maybe that's my privilege speaking as I'm really not their target customer.
1: Yeah, I agree on that. I definitely, I think that the brands that have been established are admirable and have done really hard work because actually it was not obvious that you're going to have fintech brands with millions of users 10 years ago. Because there weren't, you know, so I think the wealth fronts and Betterments, which are sort of like the, the generation of startups that I'm mm-hmm. very familiar with, like most familiar with, they're looking at 50K to 500K users that, you know, because they're looking at assets still. Whereas I think the next generation was very much look Acorn Stash and then Chime and, and so on are looking at user acquisition at scale and certainly Revolut did that fantastically. I'm not mentioning Coinbase because I think it's a slightly different animal, but yeah. certainly with you know 40 million users there. So I think the acquisition of customers was really, really hard. And like you say, building good economics is non-trivial because two-thirds of these companies have absolutely awful economics, and then one-third have really, really good ones. Um, right. and so you know it's totally not trivial. I guess I'm just making a rhetorical statement that there are other pastures, you know, for problems that are more difficult. um, And I would encourage people to focus there.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And I think from the product side, as you mentioned, I think these things are becoming so commoditized, much like Robo has become commoditized. Maybe, you know, the, the challenger bank model has begun very commoditized. What I am excited for, for the next few years, is the affinity type. Brand. And I mean, even, you know, we had Life Abraham from Public on a few months ago. And he was like, I don't care about product differentiation. This is all commoditized. That's not where I compete. And I think every fintech person that's focused on product is missing the big picture. I care about building community and finding people that resonate around a common goal and certain shared values. And that's where I, that's what my competitive advantage is going to be for the next 10 years. Because for me to just shave a couple bips off a certain interest rate or provide slightly lower transaction costs is just fighting a losing battle. Yeah. I think that's right.
1: Let's, I can illustrate that as, as follows. So, one of the clear trends is the collapse in distance between the customer and the financial product. You know, so the value chain used to be really long. You could use the words like intermediation. You could use the words like decentralization. It doesn't matter. The short answer is if you're doing direct listings of IPOs, you're cutting out people from the value chain. You know, if, if uh, consumers are driving GameStop stock directly, then it's direct access. And so the distance in the value chain is much more compressed and so that means that I think brand is that much more valuable for whatever is the engagement mechanism. And you're also fighting all of the other attention machines that are, you know, the media attention machines, which are mm-hmm. far more fun and more powerful and so on. And so you, you do have to uh, do that on community and values. And I don't think it's a, just a thing to say, like, the reason that Cash App beat Venmo is because of community. For, without you know, for real, for by by 100%. being super smart with influencers, the reason that cryptos has engagement that is twenty thousand times any other fintech theme. Like you search Twitter, is community. People care. Right. They, their heart is in it. It's they care about the philosophy of freedom. They care about responding politically uh, to their right. inputs, and of course, they they have economic ownership. And so, I think community there is really powerful think that just on the point around the commodity of product, right? So embedded finance is exactly that. Embedded finance says just get all this stuff through APIs from faceless companies that don't matter, right? At scale. And um, those companies are really good. Also, you know, we just had a SPAC of Apex Clearing announced at about 4.7 billion. Yeah. And so like, I remember all the robo advisors that that wanted to custody at TD or Schwab or, you know, then started choosing Apex and then built broker dealers on Apex, and then Apex added crypto custody and then there was Robinhood and so on, and Apex is at the bottom of the value chain again, going to the point of there is no middle, and they just have all the accounts, you know, and I think that's another place where you can definitely build and be very successful.
0: Yeah, and quick note for our listeners, we had Apex's chief product officer, Dustin Kirkland, on the show back in January, breaking down what Apex does and how they do fractional trading. So, Lex, I want to talk about something you've alluded to a few times in this episode. You know, we're in February right now, and crypto art and NFTs are becoming a serious movement. Honestly, I was not a believer when I first heard about it in November. I was staring at like tokenized pieces of Majin Buu from Dragon Ball Z, melded with a Bitcoin and thinking this is absolute, you know, like 4chan nonsense. But I've left my mind open long enough and actually seen the immense potential and the general thesis behind this type of art. We're objectively approaching mania phase, but I think this movement is very real. How do you make sense of all of this?
1: I think everybody should come to the conclusion and like tattoo in their heart, the truth, which is that we live in a circus and nothing matters, right? Like we're serious people and, you know, we go to serious school and we run serious businesses on accounting uh, software. And at the same time, a dude named Mr. Beast, you know, is the uh, like yeah. the most popular person on YouTube. And no amount of Ivy League is going to change that, right? So we're entering a different world. What people are talking about are things like, you know, the metaverse or like the the endless Fortnite virtual reality world, right? And like the economies of these things are throwing off billions in revenue. And esports are more valuable than real sports, and so on and so forth. And you know, as a person who is aging, I am at risk of. Aging out of these themes and being like kind of cranky about them. Right. So, so I think starting from the point of all my assumptions about value are, you know, check my intuitions at the door, I think is important. So what is crypto art? Crypto art is digital art as it's anchored to a blockchain. And so what anchoring to a blockchain does is create scarcity. It's a really simple attribute that's very powerful. And, you know, in the physical world, if I give you a bottle of water, you have it, and I don't, and you can give me money for it, and then you don't have the money. And we have an economic exchange, and it, it works with how our brains work. And then when we go to the digital world of the last 20 years, I send you a picture of a water bottle, and we all have more of these pictures, and there's no economic exchange. It doesn't work. There's nothing to pay for. Therefore, digital art, starting from, you know, the year... 95 and on has been basically worthless you know like if an artist puts the thing on on paint it's valuable and if they spend 10 times as much time in photoshop it's not valuable and that's clearly wrong it's just it's not right there's nothing special about paint it's just a okay. technology and so um you know it's it's the the human effort that makes the thing and so anchoring a piece of art to the blockchain makes it scarce makes it digital so i can give it to you and you can pay me for it that's the whole invention and now there's a second part to this outside of just the the fact that it's scarce and there's an authentic real version. And th- that point is, well, why can't I just make a copy and send you a picture of a copy? And the answer is for the same reason that a poster of a painting is not valuable because it's never about the image. Actually, it doesn't matter what's on the image ever. Right. The only thing that matters is who made it, under what circumstances, in what social context, and what was the movement around it, and what's the history of that particular piece. And that's why classic art or modern art is valuable is because of its place in history, not because of how it looks and because of who made it. And so what's happening now is you're watching a movement get started. And so collectors are valuing things that appear very silly, but they're collecting it because of their social and historical importance, you know, being first sure. um, and knowing that these things are first. And then also, they're flush with crypto cash.
0: So that helps it too. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. And I mean, Ethereum's boom, <laughs> I think, has led to especially reckless behavior. And we're going to keep seeing that. But, you know, on a broader point, I feel like my generation is going off and having its own Dada movement right now. You know, reminds me of the Duchamp toilet art from everyone's art history 101 class, you know, basically saying, if my friends and I can be forced to die in trenches at war at age 19, why can't a toilet be art? And, you know, I will make it art because I can, and societal norms are meaningless anymore. Um, And, you know, I think you look at just what anyone under 35 has seen, you know, stagnant wages, extended conflict in the Middle East, this huge student debt crisis, the financial system collapse in 2008, and all that lost trust, and, you know, all of this underpinned by just political circuses over the last decade. And especially now, I think COVID has really disillusioned a lot of people's trust in effective government responses for a variety of reasons. It's, it's like, you know, what does any of this matter anymore?
1: That's a it's a really astute observation, you know, and I think that movement, the Duchamp Fountain, it was called the Dada movement. And recently I looked up and it sold for 1.7 million, the toilet. Was it tokenized? Uh, it wasn't tokenized, but then you know what else sold for one point seven million is the the Rick and Morty creator. He did a bunch of sketches, and the sketches they were titled "This is the best I could do," and they were just like awful. They were horrible. They were just like it's definitely not the best he could do, you know. But he did it as this like sardonic joke, and it's very Dada Um, and it sold for one point seven million as well. So there's a really interesting symmetry. And the observation, nothing matters, isn't like the sort of like nothing's real. It's it's right. rather the observation that all our systems are fallible, and that Absolutely. they're right now they're being reformatted, and they're not being reformatted by the authority sort of power structure of ten years ago. They're really being remade by technology native, uh, sort of socially conscious and driven young people who are making super exciting, beautiful things,
0: and it's exciting. Absolutely. It's going to be a huge shift over the, the next few years that I'm very excited for. So Lex, you've reached the final part of the episode, which is the rapid fire round. We've got about 10 questions for you. 10 second answer max. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. First one. Firm you wish you could be on the board of? Stripe. Easy answer. Shout out to Mark Carney just getting announced to the, to the board. This is going to be tough for you to keep under 10 seconds. Decision making framework for major life decisions. Ooh, uh, Microsoft Office Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> just a ranking and summing just, of- the Just, just <laughs>
1: a multi, multi-variate, you know. Oh, I love it. <laughs> All right, how about toughest project you ever took on? Oh God, that is impossible in 10 seconds. Um, I wrote crew in college for four years, so probably that. That's tough. How about favorite thing to write about these days? Um, the nFT and crypto art stuff is really is really that. um it's just been a pleasure because so it's so uh, multi um, uh, multi-dimensional and and I, I just love that
0: stuff. What is Lex Sokolin's retirement look like when and where? Ooh, I actually
1: think it's it's um if I have one hand in finance and fintech and then I have one hand in um the digital arts, um that's really it. So, as long as our market grows, I feel like I'm doing what I love. Uh, if our market crashes and contracts, then it's going to be tough. But as long as we keep going as it is, there's so much fun stuff to do.
0: Awesome. All right. How about generally current asset allocations? Um,
1: that's an interesting one. Um, I kind of, my DNA is, uh, uh, Passive diversified, you know, so 60-40 and so on. So global asset allocation from BlackRock is your your kind of core with some commodities and, and real estate in there. But uh, just a nice passive robo, I would say that should be your 60%. And then the 40%, I mean, at this point, I think it should be, I, uh, <laughs> people will give me a tough time, but I think 40% in crypto is right. And then that you do, 50-50 or like 40-40 Bitcoin ETH
0: and then the rest in
1: DeFi or crypto right. art stuff. Got it.
0: Well, Mike Dudas was on last week and said he's 95% in Bitcoin. So cons- you're conservative. by. His I know. I don't have diamond hands. I just, I have, I'm <laughs> too emotional. Um. All right. And then last question. Everybody's, you know, let's fast forward. Everybody's vaccinated. COVID is a distant memory. What is the first big vacation you go on?
1: I got to take my, my wife and kids to somewhere warm on a beach. Uh, We've been locked in a house with each other for a long time. And I just think uh, getting us out, you know, uh, somebody in the South of Europe would
0: be great. Awesome. Well, Lex, it was fantastic having you on today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I want to thank you again for coming on. My pleasure, anytime. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zouk.